interesting movement currently uh, going on among philosophers and some uh, sort of neoconservatives or neocons. And they're folks who like the way that the Bible describes the world better than the sort of there are no rules approach to life that atheistic evolution gives us. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, if all of this is the result of time and chance and it's one great cosmic accident, then why do we think there would be meaning? Why do we think there would be rules? And so there are particular philosophers and particular sort of neoconservatives who are saying, hey, isn't it great? The Bible describes for us something that's different. Well, that's true. The meaning and value of the world in which we live in is greatly enhanced by the Bible's view of creation. But friends, let's understand that that's not all the Word of God does. God's Word does not merely describe the way things are. God's Word creates everything that is. It does not merely describe it to us. Rather, it is a powerful, creative thing. And we learn this right from the beginning. God acts in Genesis chapter 1, not by waving his hands and not by some sort of uh, crazy dance or interesting movement. God doesn't uh, say, well, I have this cookbook and out of my cookbook, here's how I create a cosmos. No, the Bible tells us that God speaks. God uses words. There was nothing. God speaks, there's something. The something is that which God has spoken into existence. So let's understand that it isn't just that the Bible describes a good life for us, though it does. The Bible does describe things for us in ways that are very helpful. If you want a good marriage, kids that don't make you crazy healthy finances. Yes, the Bible describes all those things to you, and they're good. But the Bible is not simply a book that helps you live your life, handle crises, and reach your full potential. No, the Word of God creates where there once was nothing. The Bible is the very ground of the reality in which we find ourselves. God speaks and chaos and nothingness are replaced by day and night, sky and earth, land and water, plant and animal, male and female. Friends, the fact that we are even here is due entirely to the creative power of God's word. Now, that isn't simply true in creation. It's also true in recreation. The Bible does not merely describe the Lord Jesus Christ to you. But the Word of God, the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, makes Christ beautiful to you. You were once dead in your sin and in your trespasses, the Bible tells us. But we have now been made alive in Christ. Well, how does that happen? It happens through the Word of God creating where there once was nothing. You were dead. You've been made alive. 
And friends, it isn't simply that God's word creates this kind of reality just in that moment in which we are saved, but that work of recreation continues in our lives. We are continually reminded of the reality uh, uh, that is our lives, and the Bible does it in ways sometimes that we don't always like. Have you noticed that? We saw that in Sunday school this morning in, uh, in um, Jeremiah chapter 36. Jer- Baruch, actually, because Jeremiah has been kicked out of the temple already, so Baruch goes and he takes the scroll and they're going to read it to the king and the king sits down and takes a pen knife and cuts out all the parts he doesn't like. Now, we're not quite that bold, but we do something very similar, don't we? Amy and I have begun reading a book uh, by a Dutch theologian named Herman, Herman Babink, and it's called The Christian Family. And in the introduction, the author makes a point. He says, uh, Babink oftentimes in the book is going to remind married couples of a particular uncomfortable truth, and here it is. You, as a sinner, are often the greatest cross your spouse is called upon to bear. You, as a sinner, are often the greatest cross your spouse is called upon to bear. Now that creates something in me that was not there before. It creates a desire to repent. It also creates a sense of sort of gracious humility. There are days, aren't there, in which our spouse is working on our last nerve and we very much want to bless them with the knowledge of that. And yet, you are often the greatest cross your spouse is called upon to bear. The Bible creates, the word of God is powerful, it creates reality, it creates where there was nothing. It creates and it recreates. Secondly, we do need to be aware of an alternative word or an alternate word. Just a few chapters into this glorious reality that God has brought about through his word and not just created by, but also governed by, an alternate word enters the picture. Turn in your Bible one page to Genesis chapter 3. And we're not going to look at all of it. We are just going to look, though, at that first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, it's interesting, God has given through his word commands, he's given this reality, and right away, there's an alternate reality, there's an alternate word that is presented. Moses tells us, you have snakes who talk. He could have said, the snake slithered on the ground and spelled it out, that's not what he says. He could have said, the snake used some sort of weird snake hypnosis, Because snakes are weird and they would do stuff like that. It's not what he says. The word of God is challenged by an alternate word. And the word questions the very creative, powerful word of God 
by which all things are made and all things are governed. And whereas the word of God brings life and order, this alternate word is going to bring death and chaos. Did God actually say? This is Satan's ploy. We doubt the word of God, and therefore we doubt the character of the one who spoke the word. This alternate word tells us that God is not God and that God cannot be trusted. One of the reasons that historically uh, Protestant Christians have believed that we need to come together on a weekly basis and sit under the word of God is because we are everywhere and in every place surrounded by these alternate words. We are constantly being asked the question, did God really say? All around us, we see the character and the goodness of God being questioned. And if God is not good, then why would we trust him? If God's word is not authoritative, then why would we try to be obedient to it? So one of the reasons that ordinary means of grace churches are typically, and we haven't for lots of reasons, but we, typically an ordinary means of grace church will have a Sunday night in a midweek service. And they did so to remind people that we have a life-giving word. Not an alternate word that creates chaos and death, but a word that brings order and life. And so let's not exchange this life-giving word for an alternate word that will not bring the happiness and fulfillment that it promises, but instead will bring death and chaos. And we see it time and time again in the scriptures. And unfortunately, we've seen it time and time again in our own lives. So let me ask you a question this morning. How is your intake of God's word? I often joke in Sunday school uh, when I ask a particular question about Bible content that it's a Jeopardy question. So I'm curious, how much of a beachhead has the alternate word made into your mind and into your soul? How often does the question, did God actually say, rattling around in your head and in your soul? Friends, one of the things we need to recognize is answering the question, did God really say, means we actually know what God said in the first place. There's a, I've shared this illustration before, but it's, it's, uh, it's I think, particularly poignant. Uh, during the, um, when the beginning of World War II, when the British Expeditionary Forces were cut off in France, it looked like the entire army was going to be taken, and then uh, the, British, the British commander wires to London and says, hey, we need people to come pick us up. Like, you got to come get us because we can't hold out. And uh, this, is, this is really going to be bad. So we need you to come get us. But if not. Now, we would hear that and go, but if not what? Like, what's, what's going on? Well, <laughs> that particular generation of English 
uh, children had been raised in public schools in which they had been taught Bible, and but if not is actually a quote from the book of Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, when they tell the king, hey, we're not gonna, we don't have to give you an answer to this. We're not gonna bow down. Our God is gonna deliver us, but if not. Everybody simply knew it because their level of Bible intake was such that the word of God dwelt and resided within them. Do we know that word well enough that when an alternate word comes along, we recognize it as being counterfeit? Thirdly, let's not separate what God has joined together. Let's not separate what God has joined together. Now we go to our text in Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the chapter right before it, the Lord has given us the wonderful promise of the new covenant. It begins in verse 25 when he says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, it is this wonderful promise that Jesus then alludes to in John chapter 3. When he's speaking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of water and Spirit. So one of the things then, uh, the question then that comes to us is, well, how is this great new covenant reality going to come about? Answer, Ezekiel chapter 37. It's through preaching. It's through preaching. Did you see uh, how Ezekiel chapter 37 began? God asked the question, son of verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel wisely says, I'm paraphrasing, God, I don't know, but you do. And look what the Lord tells him in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about going to a cemetery and starting to preach to see if this would actually work. One of the first pastors I served under, that's where he would go practice his sermons. He was rather disappointed that he didn't have uh, sort of the same response that Ezekiel did, but he tried it nonetheless. So one of the, the, the remarks that I hear often about the way in which we have done church and the liturgy that we have. And I, I thought this having served in a, in a different tradition and having grown up in a different tradition. Hey, all that liturgy and all those readings and all that Bible and all that praying and all that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's great. But, you know, it seems like you might be covering up for the absence of the Holy Spirit. Like if, if y'all were really spirit-empowered, you, you wouldn't need all that reading and all that liturgy and all that. Like, no, you just let, you just let, the, spirit, just let the spirit work. My answer to that now has just been like, oh, 
okay, really? What do you think about the nature of the reality between God's word and God's spirit? See, the Bible is not a magic book. These are not magic words or magic beans. Rather, what we learn in Genesis chapter 1, and then again very powerfully in Ezekiel chapter 37, is that the word of God is always accompanied by the spirit of God. Always. That you cannot separate between the two. Look again at verse 14 in Ezekiel chapter uh, 37 at the end of this preaching I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land then you shall know that I am the Lord I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord do you see the link between the spirit of God the word of God and the way that God works God works through his word and that word is made powerful through his spirit it was true in creation. It is true in recreation. So why do we have all the scripture readings? Why do we have the praying? Why do we have the confessing? Why are all of those things going on? Because we think, we understand, we believe, we would hold that that's the way that God's spirit does his work in our lives. It's not a preference question. It's not, well, some people like their like their worship a little more lively and some people like it a little more conservative or a little more no no we have chosen to work this particular way because we understand that God does his work of recreation through his word by his spirit and so we order and we structure our service because we want to get as much of that word in our time together as we possibly can. We want to give the Holy Spirit as much canvas as he can possibly get in which to paint on our lives. That's what we're after. We're not trying to hide from him. We're not afraid that he might show up. No, we're doing these things because we desperately want him to show up. And we desperately want him to work. And the book that he inspired tells us that there is an inseparable link between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So it's fine if someone comes and says, well, you know, maybe not quite so much liturgy, maybe not quite so much Bible stuff, maybe not quite so much, okay, whatever. But let's not make the argument that we're doing those things because we're somehow afraid of the Holy Spirit coming or we're trying to cover the absence of the Spirit of God in our midst. No, friends, we're doing those things because we want to give the Holy Spirit free reign. We want him to work. We want him to do that work of recreation that only he can do. The word that creates reality also creates a new reality for the people of God. Our justification by grace through faith depends upon the power of God's declaration to make a thing to be that which it is intrinsically not. In other words, we who are actually sinful and guilty are declared by God to be righteous and not guilty. 
Likewise, the cross appears to be a crushing defeat of the one who hangs there. But God in his word tells us that the opposite was actually true. That in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which appeared to be a crushing defeat, was actually a spectacular and decisive triumph over evil. It's that triumph then that we celebrate today at the table. God can declare that the guilty are not guilty only because of the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come this morning to that table because in both creation and recreation, God calls us to come. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which your spirit accompanies always the proclamation and the preaching of your word, the reading of your word. And Father, we pray that as, uh, as Grace Church looks to the next chapter, that Lord, this would continue to be a place in which the word of God is proclaimed faithfully, in which the word of God is proclaimed powerfully, and in which your people take seriously the obligation that is placed upon them as they are called to respond in repentance and in faith. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.